Welcome to HTT's 2020 Alt Fuel Overview. I'm Jim Park, and this is HTT Talks Trucking, Season 4, Episode Number 5. As we were prepping this podcast, we were also in production of HTT's October issue. It included a cover story that was an overview of alternative fuels for trucking, specifically battery electric, fuel cell electric, and renewable natural gas. We aren't in the business of picking winners and losers here, but these three seem to hold the most promise at the moment. Editor-in-Chief Deb Lockridge and I co-wrote the story, and we both spent way too much time researching the topic. Deb joins me on this podcast to hash out what we learned. The first half of the podcast is mostly about batteries and fuel cells. We dig deeper into renewable natural gas in the second half. Our conversation begins right after this. This episode is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a unique networking event where fleet managers and suppliers connect and collaborate. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to learn more. So, Deb, how are you? Have you come up for air yet after the uh, finishing up that massive October issue? Yeah, boy, that was uh, there was so much information that we dug into. I thought we were never going to. I figure I had to cram it all in there. <laughs> one of the things, you know, one of the takeaways, I guess, from our October cover story on alternate fuels was how much momentum this is really gaining now. And we've been talking about alternate fuels for years, it seems. Batteries, hydrogen fuel cells, I mean, everything is just, we're seeing these things coming to fruition now. We really are. Yeah. And like you said, we've covered all sorts of things, but this past year, starting about a year ago at the North American Commercial Vehicle Show, I was amazed at the number of electric and fuel cell um, trucks and components and concept vehicles on display there, and it has not slowed down. Yeah, look at what we've just seen come out of California with their advanced clean trucks rule. That's, yeah, that's huge. It is. It is. You know, by 2045, um, every new truck sold in California is supposed to be zero emissions, and uh, there's levels, you know, on the way there uh, to where by 2035, um, 75% of class four to eight straight trucks are supposed to be zero emissions and 40% of the tractor sales. Um, and then the Governor Newsom just came out recently talk, uh, announcing that light duty vehicles will need to be zero emissions by 2035. So that's a lot going on there. You think that's realistic? That's a, you know, that's, it's a good question. Um, because you've not only got the, the vehicles, which obviously, a, from what we've seen this past year, just about every uh, vehicle maker and ones we've never even heard of have been working on, on developing these. But you've also got the charging infrastructure and questions about the grid. Um, so it's going to be real interesting to see um, how this plays out. Um, and it's not just California. California was one of 15 states along with the District of Columbia that signed an agreement pledging to develop a plan to eliminate diesel emissions by 2050. Well, that, that still gives us 30 years. That, that, that I think, is probably achievable. Um, I worry about, you know, the short-term horizons in 2035, and that's only 15 years out. And I know, I don't know about you, but I hate being the first guy in the block with a new truck or car model. Exactly. <laughs> you know, all these new electric things are coming on the market. So well, that's great. But, you know, where's your million miles of uh, reliability growth testing? Uh, 
It's like I never download the, the latest um, operating system for my phone until it's been out for a exactly. little while. <laughs> yeah. Well, once bitten, twice shy, I guess. Well, and we've got, you know, in the trucking industry, you know, obviously we're a little once bitten, twice shy with some regulations with what we saw with the emissions oh, regulations, indeed, yeah. you know, in the two, that early 2000s that were rushed through uh, too fast. And you ended up with vehicles that uh, were maintenance nightmares for a lot of fleets. Um, so I'm sure uh, people are taking a close look at these regulations and hoping we're not going to uh, see something similar. Well, yeah, we're all thinking about that. It's all in the back of all of our minds, I'm sure. But one thing we're seeing now, again, end of 2020, uh, a lot more fleets seem to be embracing this and, and taking on these trucks as either test projects or, or actually putting some of them into revenue service already, which is encouraging, I guess. Yeah, I think you know, you've got a lot of companies, especially um, you get into private fleets, that uh, their their parent companies have sustainability goals. I mean, Walmart just uh, introduced their wanting to go all zero emission trucks uh, by 2040. Uh, or you get uh, four hire fleets that are doing a lot of dedicated uh, delivery, again, for companies that they, they want to be seen as sustainability or it's one of their core values. Um, so there is demand driving it. It's not just regulations. I think that's what's going to finally push this over the top is not just a bunch of government people and activists wagging their fingers at us, but fleets that actually have concrete goals and, and want to do this by a specified point in time. So that's going to keep the fire lit under some people's backsides, I think. And I think you've got truck makers now that are developing uh, these vehicles. They're getting the fleets involved a lot earlier in the process. Um, so they understand you know, from the get-go what the challenges are in actual real-world operation. For the October issue, uh, our alt fuel story this, this time around was we basically covered three things, battery electric, hydrogen fuel cells, and uh, renewable natural gas. So let's start off talking a little bit about something that's kind of familiar with, to most people, and that is the, uh, the battery electric side of things. Can you kind of give us an overview of what you've been watching over the past year, what you've seen happen, you know, since we last covered this? Yeah, yeah. As I mentioned, you know, at NACV last year, there was a lot of uh, electric stuff on the show floor. You had component makers like Bosch and Dana and Eaton and Meritor had electric axles and transmissions and components. You had, you know, Peterbilt and Daimler and Navistar companies all showing off electric trucks. Um, and then it just went from there. Um, Daimler uh, finished out rolling their electric innovation fleet. As I mentioned, you know, they're working more closely with fleets from the beginning and added a second group of fleets that are testing electric trucks um, that they're calling the customer experience fleet. I'm in medium duty. We've got electric trucks already commercially available. Kenworth and Peterbilt just recently opened the order books um, on their electric trucks. Mac announced it's commercializing its uh, electric version of its LR refuse truck. Yeah, wow. we just heard from Hino, too, that they've got uh, their Project Z underway now. And uh, one of the trucks that they did, I think it was the L4 or L5, L4, I think it was, uh, they said was now commercially available. You could go out and buy one of those if you wanted. Yeah, exactly. They've got at least one commercially available, and they showed off um, several uh, sort of concept vehicles they're working on. One of them uh, was a Class 7 that they're working on with uh, Allison Transmission with their new e-axle. Um, 
We've got Navistar, who's recently said that an electric truck's going to be the first vehicle off the line at its new San Antonio plant when it opens in 2022. Um, and there's a lot going on on the lighter duty side, too. There's companies out there uh, looking at electric pickup trucks and uh there's panel vans and cargo vans. So uh, there is a lot of activity in the battery electric area. Well, a lot of the conversation we've been having over the past year has been about range and, you know, the size and weight of the batteries, payload capacity, that sort of thing. Now I think the infrastructure is coming more to the fore. Uh, what did you learn about infrastructure when you were writing that story for October? Yeah, you know, I was in several um, virtual events this uh past month or two, um, and more than one dealt with this electric charging question. Because, I mean, for any alternative fuel, you've always had that chicken and the egg question about infrastructure. Um, and obviously, battery electric is no exception to that. Uh, so what we're hearing a lot about now is what they call depot charging. Um, instead of thinking that we're going to have to get public stations at truck stops, we're looking at applications where the trucks get back every night and they can charge at the fleet facility or um, if it's maybe a more regional operation that it is something where the routes are planned ahead of time you know that this truck always goes on this route it can always stop at this particular terminal along the way to you know pick up a a quick charge Um, so that's really what we're hearing a lot about Um, but what happens now is you're asking a fleet to really tackle a complex challenge. This isn't just like putting in some underground fuel tanks and some pumps. Um, and uh, we don't have decades of best practices to go on. You know, this is an industry that's we're kind of making things up as we go along, it seems like. Um, it's why you've got some of these pilot electric truck projects in California, like um, Daimler's uh, Freightliner Innovation Fleet. You've got the Volvo Lights program. They're not just working with the fleets on how the trucks run. They're also working with fleets and partners on the whole charging infrastructure. They're working with utilities. They're working with charging companies. They're working with companies whose uh, specialty is providing the software that manages this whole thing. Um, so it's 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 complex. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting it mildly. Um, we don't even have one single standard yet for the actual, you know, plugs that, that go in between the electric charger and the truck. Different trucks at this point are still using different chargers. Um, something they're working on. There's a couple different consortiums that are working on, on coming up with standards and, um, you know, you want to also avoid having to pull power during peak times. Uh, you know, obviously the grid as we, you know, People wonder, you know, can the grid handle it? And you look at how much more it's going to charge. If you're pulling power at a peak time, uh, the utility is going to charge you a lot more. So now we're talking about microgrids with energy storage and even solar power. Um, so it is a uh, complex undertaking. Well, a lot of the resources that I found online were suggesting that California. Uh, is in a really precarious position right now with respect to its capacity. When they start getting into their peaks, you know, which happens, you know, a couple of times a day, they have to start buying energy from other grids. But the the overall question is, how do we produce enough energy to power up? I mean, we're talking right now a handful of trucks. You know, everybody says, oh, yeah, we can handle this. But if you put two E-Cascadias together on the same charging 
uh, network. That's a megawatt of power overnight, you know, to charge up two E-Cascadias or two Class 8 trucks. I shouldn't pick on Freightliner. It's, you know, 500 megawatt battery or kilowatt battery pack. So well, now you've got two the, trucks the, the at a EVN megawatt. Put in 100 trucks and what have you got? You know, yeah. where are you going to get that from? Yeah, that's a good question. And and then what about reliability? Uh you know, you've seen rolling, yeah, yeah, you've seen rolling blackouts in California, you know, with the recent wildfires, you know, that causes problems um, in other parts of the country. Uh, you know, you have storms and things that affect the electrical grid. Uh, so that's, you know, that's a good question, too. Well, I can see those brownouts becoming the next, the dog ate my homework excuse for not making a delivery. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Sorry, we had a brownout, couldn't charge our trucks last night, talk to you tomorrow. I mean, that's re- that's a real problem. It's something we're going to have to overcome, yeah. So, Jim, electric charging and electric trucks are just part of what we looked at in our October issue. You dug into fuel cell technology. And, you know, for years, it's been sort of a joke in the industry that hydrogen fuel cells are the fuel of the future, and they always will be. But that really (laughs) seems to be changing. Um and again, it's really something we've seen a lot of in the past year. Um, you know, we've seen, you know, not only you know, Nikola, which has had its own challenges, um, but, you know, Kenworth and Toyota have been working on hydrogen. Uh, Cummins, uh, recent announcements from, from uh, uh, Hyundai. Um, Daimler Trucks North America President CEO Roger Nielsen told me about a year ago that the company believed fuel cell trucks and battery electric trucks would exist side by side as we get into the first half of the century. Um, We've even got the Department of Energy investing in fuel cell research. Uh, Hino and Toyota recently made an announcement. Daimler and Volvo announced earlier this year they would work together on fuel cells. So there is a lot going on there. In your digging, what did you learn about fuel cells that maybe you didn't already know? Well, I guess the big takeaway I, I learned uh, was that it's probably more viable than I originally thought. I mean, and certainly more applications for it than I originally thought, uh, was led to believe. You know, we've seen it in, uh, in transit buses all over the world now for up to 20 years or so. And according to some sources, you can use it in, you know, any number of applications, I think probably watching Nikola dance around with this thing for the last few years, um, I mean, they launched that uh, that truck in the end of 2016. Here it is, 2020, and we really haven't seen any performance from that hydrogen truck whatsoever. Uh, yet, you know, there are projects underway now with uh, Toyota and Kenworth, uh, the uh, Portal project, and then there was the Kenworth uh, Zect truck. That's the zero emissions cargo transport. That was a hydrogen fuel cell. And, of course, recently we saw Hyundai come to the table. Now, you talk about out of the blue. They appeared on the radar screen about two weeks ago, at least on our radar screen here in North America, and announced that they had uh, or would have production capacity for up to 2,000 trucks by the end of next year and fully expect to have about 1,600 trucks on the road by 2025. That's 1,600 uh, hydrogen fuel cell trucks. And Nikola, while we still have... Trevor Milton, well, not anymore to kick around, uh, but, you know, running alongside one in a parking lot. So I, I think it's a lot further ahead than we imagined if that was all we were watching. And certainly uh, it's got a lot more potential. And I think we might have been led to believe if we were only watching Nikola. You know, one of the advantages hydrogen has over batteries right off the bat is, uh, is range. There is a bit of a downside when you start putting on uh, lots of 
you know, compressed gas tanks. Uh, they're not light. Uh, and in order to get range, I think Hyundai was claiming up to 600 miles, that would require about uh, 150 pounds of, of hydrogen gas, which is going to take, I think, about nine cylinders to do that, if, you know, by Hyundai's model. So that would uh, that would be significantly heavy. Uh, maybe not as heavy as uh, you know the equivalent range in batteries, but it's it's still getting up there. But you know you can solve some of that with legislation, the way we did with the uh, the APU question. Uh, you know by allowing a higher weight on some axles if you had the uh, energy saving technology to uh, to justify it. Anyway, uh, you know there's <laughs> the other thing I guess that surprised me was the range of applications that uh, I've heard people say it can be used in. We have people, you know, claiming now you can put it into uh, buses, panel vans, delivery trucks, uh, ready mix trucks, all sorts of applications that, you know, it sounds perfectly vile. I mean, at the end of the day, it's still an electric drive system. Uh, You just don't have batteries. You have hydrogen storage tanks. So I I, I think there's a, you know, it'll work in in darn near any application you uh, you bring it to. I I guess you could. I guess the point that... um people might be thinking is that you know while battery electric can be used for uh, short haul um, it's not really uh, a good choice for long haul at least you know at this point with the technology we can see now and that hydrogen is more suitable for long haul uh, because of the range um, so I know it's a good question to me uh, hydrogen makes at least as much sense as batteries and in a lot of cases makes more sense than batteries one of the main questions that remains with hydrogen fuel cells i have utterly no idea how much a hydrogen fuel cell truck costs i've heard people talking about the cost of a battery electric truck being twice the cost of a diesel so Mm -hmm. if that's the case um you know a, a, a battery electric truck might cost 250 thousand give or take and there's subsidies in place now in places like california that will cover one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of the cost of a battery electric vehicle so that sort of kicks in at about halfway (laughs) during the conversation we had with uh hyundai a few weeks ago they said that the subsidies in california uh for hydrogen fuel cell vehicles are going to be in the order of three hundred thousand dollars per truck so what does that tell you about how much these things might cost if right. you use the same example? Well, and I think I think we're a little closer on battery electric than we are on hydrogen electric as far as sort of where we are in the development process, which I would think would help um, explain some of the difference in cost. But yeah, it's, it's, nobody's really talking much about the cost of what hydrogen electric may be. Um, Daimler recently announced that they were looking at liquid hydrogen and uh, seemed to indicate that they thought that it would be uh, more cost effective um, as from far as sort of a total cost of ownership perspective and ability to you know, match the performance of, of diesel. Um, so that was another wrinkle that just got thrown into the situation recently you know it's similar to the discussion we were having a few years ago uh, with liquid natural gas and compressed natural gas uh, the gas would still need to be vaporized before it uh, passes through the fuel cell liquefying it increases the energy density considerably so you'd have smaller and lighter tanks on the truck when daimler made the announcement they said they were hoping to get 600 miles 
uh, out of a much smaller and lighter tank. So that's, you know, that's got to be seen as a positive thing. Uh, but the statement that they were going to switch to liquid raised a lot of eyebrows and sent waves of disappointment through the hydrogen world. It sowed some doubts as to how how much it was going to slow down the development of, of hydrogen. The thinking was that, you know, a major company like uh, Daimler, if there's a divergence in the kind of fuel that they're going to be using, then all the people who are setting up now to use gaseous hydrogen are going to be sitting back waiting for Daimler to decide if they're going to go with liquid or stay with gas. And being, you know, a pretty large consumer, then, you know, they're going to have, you know, some stake in the, uh, on how the uh, fueling infrastructure is eventually going to develop. Uh, Daimler said they're going to be bringing this to the fore probably in the second half of the decade. So that's, you know, that could really slow adoption down. And there's all kinds of conspiracy theories already on social media as to why Daimler did that. Uh, some of them have it that Daimler was just uh, buying time or trying to buy time to catch up on its uh, fuel cell development. So, I mean, those are conspiracy theories. Who knows really what's at play here? I'm not sure if uh, switching gears from uh, gaseous hydrogen to liquid at this point is a really smart thing to do, but I'm sure Daimler is a lot smarter than I am. (laughs) Well, when we're talking about battery and hydrogen, there seems to be uh, some debate at times about, you know, we need to do battery, we need to do hydrogen fuel cells. Um, Does it have to be either or? I'm utterly convinced that there's room for everything. And probably even more stuff that we haven't, you know, really thought seriously about yet. Batteries, for their obvious reasons, you know, uh, they're neat and clean. They're here now. They're working. And they work great in a local context. Hydrogen, if if it pans out uh, and starts giving us the long-haul range, then, you know, we put some trucks on, on hydrogen to run longer haul. You know, some battery shorter haul trucks. Bottom line is, no, I don't think we're going to see one or the other win this argument. You know, going out 20 years, I think it's going to be a a combination of different types of fuel and different applications that, uh, you know, best suit the, uh, the circumstances. You're listening to HDT Talks Trucking's 2020 Alt Fuel Overview, an editor's eye view of the Alt Fuels Marketplace with HDT Editor-in-Chief Deb Lockridge and me, Jim Park. We'll be back in just a moment with a closer look at renewable natural gas. HDT Talks Trucking is brought to you by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange, a relationship-building event hosted by Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine. HDTX is loaded with topical discussions and learning opportunities with some of the most innovative people in the business. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Managers of Class 7 and 8 fleets apply now to be our guest at HDTX 2021. To learn more and to apply, go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com. Well, another fuel that you looked at for our October issue is not a zero emissions source of power, but is near zero, uh, and that was renewable natural gas. And I know you discovered some interesting things about that in your research. Indeed. This might be the fuel of the future. Uh, (laughs) um, I've been drinking the Kool-Aid, I guess. But uh, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Literally, I mean, there are examples of this already working now, and it has been for some time. A garbage truck pulls into a landfill site, discharges a load of garbage at one end of the plant, drives around the back, hooks up a hose, and fills up the uh, the uh, natural gas storage tank with methane gas drawn off the landfill site. 
uh, and then drives out and goes and picks up more garbage. So it's a totally and absolutely renewable source of energy. As long as we're making waste, organic waste, then we can produce, that it will produce methane when it's in the ground, and we can harvest that. The, the nice thing about it is you call it a near-zero fuel. Uh, it's actually, in some cases, what they're calling sub-zero. And this took me a bit of a time to get my head around it, but uh, the methane, you know, that is... Uh, seeping from all of these landfill sites and indeed manure lagoons at dairy farms and wastewater treatment plants and what have you that's flared off right now because there's nothing else to do with the stuff is something like and i've heard various numbers here 40 60 80 times more potent a greenhouse gas than carbon dioxide is so everybody gets nervous when they start seeing these little fires burning at night on landfill sites or you know how much of this gas is escaping into the atmosphere so if you can harvest it all collect it, stuff it into a tank, and then burn it to do useful work, like powering garbage trucks and stuff, then not only are you producing a low-carbon fuel, you're actually taking a very high uh, methane source out of the waste stream and burning it and disposing of it properly while doing work. So you've you've got net zero emissions from that kind of a loop, which when is pretty amazing. That, right, when you look at that sort of larger... Uh, carbon chain, and you're not just looking at what's coming out the tailpipe at the local uh, level. Um, it was interesting, the uh, Port of Long Beach recently opened a new bridge, and they had a clean truck uh, parade to go across it to sort of open the bridge and celebrate it, and there were battery electric trucks, there were um, at least one fuel cell electric but uh, most of them were natural gas and in fact they were renewable natural gas the port um, has a renewable natural gas uh, plant or facility there for fueling um, so they're being used right now and uh, it seems like I know some people say it's well it's a bridge fuel uh, would you find out about that is it a bridge fuel or should we be looking at that this as a longer term solution well, this is where, you know, I start to develop an opinion here. And I'm a journalist, so I'm not supposed to do that. But I am allowed to editorialize from time to time. <laughs> long as, make, long as it's clear it's, that it's your opinion. This is my opinion, <laughs> yes. Um, but, I mean, derived from, you know, fairly intelligent people saying things to me about this process. As a bridge fuel, you would think that would sort of limit the amount of investment people would be willing to make in it. If someone said to you, well, you know, you can buy, uh, you know, this device, this computer, this, whatever you're talking about, uh, but it's really going to only be around for five or 10 years. So maybe, you know, you want to start planning a little further down the road for something with more longevity. You might not be that interested in buying it or investing in the technology. And people are seeing renewable natural gas as something that will get us between diesel and batteries. So they see batteries as being the end game. That's where we're going to go. It's zero emissions. It's cleaner. But those people, for some reason, uh, smart people, I might add, don't seem to mention the downstream impact of batteries and upstream, the heart, you know, the mining of the materials that goes into the batteries, uh, the eventual end of life decommissioning of all those battery cells. They don't go away cleanly and easily. Um, so... There are environmental consequences to batteries, and there are various places around this great country of ours uh, that still produce uh, a great deal of electricity on their grids from coal-powered sources. So you can't tell me that batteries are cleaner in some applications than others. California, kind of simple to figure out. Indiana, not so good. They're all coal. 
or mostly coal. So how do we get to some clean source of energy? Well, we've already got this renewable natural gas source. Every community in the country practically has either a water treatment plant or a landfill site. In fact, the guy from Cummins was telling me, now that he does have a dog in the fight. They make the engines that burn the stuff. But he was saying that there's like 2,000 landfill sites in this country, and only a handful of them have really been tapped to produce uh, renewable natural gas. They have equipment that's around, not even involving landfill, but just anaerobic digesters. They can pick up scrap food from restaurants, what have you, dump them into these things, and they literally start producing natural gas, methane, uh, within hours. Uh, In fact, one landfill site he told me about was in Louisville, Kentucky, uh, or near Louisville, at least. It's only two years old. Uh, So the stuff really hasn't had a lot of time in the ground to ferment yet. But they collect trash from, I think he said, 600,000 households, which is a fair-sized city. But that place produces, per day, 18,000 gallons, diesel gallon equivalent, of renewable natural gas. Six million gallons a year, I think he told me. That's that's, a lot. That's kind of like, you know, free energy. I mean, beyond putting the infrastructure in to to actually tap it in the first place. Yes, yes. So, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll excuse me, I hope, for getting kind of enthusiastic about this, but I don't see any downside to it. You know, you've got the weight of the compressed natural gas tanks on the trucks. That's, you know, a bit of a, a problem. But this talking a couple of thousand pounds. We can take care of that with legislation like we did with APUs a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Manure lagoons, dairy farms, you know, pig farms, cattle farms, um, landfill sites, water treatment plants all produce this really highly potent methane gas. And if all we can do is burn it off, then why don't we burn it somewhere useful, like in the cylinders of a natural gas engine? And well, Jim, why do you think that renewable natural gas seems to be getting the short shrift when we're talking about these alternative ways to power trucks? I don't know. I mean, other than bias, that you, the people you talk to uh, who have an agenda, who have some reason somebody's paying the bills, Everybody wants to see their solution succeed. So if you stop talking to the activists and the people who have dogs in the fight and start talking to people who can be a, a, you know, a little more objective when they start analyzing this, I think you probably get a different answer. There's nothing wrong with batteries and hydrogen fuel cells. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not dismissing them at all. But we have this compressed or renewable natural gas uh, that seems, to, you know, ch- checks all the boxes. The other problem with it probably is the word natural gas. You know, we had sort of a bad experience with that a few years ago. Not a bad experience, but, I mean, we got into natural gas in a big way when diesel fuel was like four or five bucks a gallon. Diesel is a lot cheaper now, and people are going, well, what am I going to do with all this natural gas stuff? You know, diesel is just simply better, and it is. Uh, But as far as second best goes, there's tons and tons of applications where you can put natural gas engines where you don't need, you know, 2,000 foot-pound of torque and 600 horsepower, like a refuse truck or a school bus or a city delivery vehicle. Uh, There's tons and tons of vehicles that you could very easily power with renewable natural gas. Other people say sometimes that uh, there's not enough of the stuff. (laughs) The calculus on that one is way over my pay grade, but, you know, with 2,000 landfill sites and only a handful tapped and no sign of humanity stopping 
uh, its production of waste, I don't think that source is going to go away anytime soon. So, and again, who's asking the question, is natural gas, a renewable natural gas going to be the ultimate end solution to this? No. So of our limited amount of landfill, if you, if you believe that argument, then put applications that we can serve with those limited resources uh, to good use, like refuse trucks. Yeah, and I think that's really the key when we're talking about alternative fuels and drivetrains is that I don't I don't think we're looking at a future where it's all one thing. I mean, it makes sense to me that different types of applications could have different types of fuels that, you know, battery electric may be best for, you know, in-city delivery and drainage type things. You know, you may, uh, the fuel cells may work better for for more long haul, you know, the you know, renewable natural gas may be better for uh, some of those applications like refuse trucks. And obviously, depending on what part of the country you're in. Um, so why can't we have a variety of, of these different alternatives? Why does it have to be winner takes all? Well, if you look at the efforts and, and uh, finances that California is putting into building out its uh, low-carbon fuel infrastructure, they're, they're spending an enormous amount of money, or will be spending at some point, subsidizing all of these things. What about places like Louisiana and Rhode Island? Uh, they, they, they'll never come close to be able, being able to put the money into this that California will. So are fleets in those places and others going to be limited to not being able to buy this stuff because the states can't afford the subsidies? Or do we look to a fuel like renewable natural gas uh, that doesn't require enormous amounts of subsidy? I mean, you can buy uh, a, a renewable natural gas truck and, and get it on the road for maybe 50000 more than the truck costs. So that's manageable. 300000 for a hydrogen fuel cell truck, maybe not. A lot of eyes are focused on California here, but that, that leaves out. You know, you know, <laughs> forty-nine other states are going to have uh, have to come up with options to uh, to support the development of this kind of stuff. Well, it's going to be interesting to watch. That's for sure. Indeed. So, before we wrap everything up, Deb, um, we've talked a lot about what's going on here at home in, uh, in the forty-eight states, North America, even uh, Europe, the rest of the world. What's going on there? Have you been following anything of that in the news? Well, I think actually that that's been really one of the interesting things about the development of electric and fuel cell technology. It is much more global uh, that, I mean, just like like um, Hyundai coming here uh, from Korea, um, they're talking about they're going to have some of their fuel cell trucks. Uh, he's going to start testing in California. A lot of other parts of the world, uh, Europe, especially with some of their uh, population density and you know, more crowded cities, are uh, more stringent on some of their emissions regulations that they're coming up with. Um, so I think that's driving a lot of development over there. You've got uh, companies like uh, uh, Scania and uh, the different uh, brands under Trayton, which used to be Volkswagen, Truck and Bus, uh, already testing fuel cell trucks and electric trucks over there. As we said, the Hyundai took trucks uh, there, shipped there from, Swiss, from to Switzerland, from from Korea. And so as you have more OEMs who are global in nature now, uh, that's going to drive 
the research and development that they can now sort of amortize over the whole world as opposed to just developing trucks for their specific regions. And so I think that's driving the research and development. And I think eventually that's going to drive economies of scale that will make these more uh, real world affordable technologies and get real return on investments for fleets. Couldn't agree with you more. I'd imagine the boon to the truck makers when they can start making you know, a million trucks essentially identical than having to worry about emissions regulations in North America and Europe and Asia and Australia and every other other place you can imagine. And we've even got we've even got um, a couple makers looking at even bringing Euro style cowovers to North America um, <laughs> to, to the U.S. Yeah, that'll probably that would probably be a bridge configuration. I don't imagine we'll be that happy with the cabover, except that European cabovers are so much nicer than ours ever were. But yeah, it's a good place to start. The other thing about Europe, um, just while we're talking about it. Their diesel prices over there are twice what ours are, if not more. And they don't have a steady, predictable supply of oil. They have to deal with the Russians. So they, the faster they get away from petroleum-based uh, energy for, for commercial transportation, the happier they're all going to be and the more secure they're all going to be. And, you know, they can start looking at a probably a more cost-effective transportation network than they have right now and, you know, subject to the whims of, oligarchs and what have you around the world charging whatever they want for a gallon of oil. We don't have that problem here. No, I mean, we've become uh, to the point where we're actually exporting oil now. Um, so it's interesting how you've got a lot of a lot of different uh, factors uh, driving this development of alternative fuel, alternative drivetrain uh, trucks. It, uh, yeah, as they say, may you live in interesting times. That's actually a Chinese curse. <laughs> uh, we're certainly doing that these days, aren't we? It's always, hey, it's keeping us busy. And no shortage of work for journalists, that's for sure. <laughs> Great talking to you, Deb. Uh, we got to do this again sometime. I, I love hashing out uh, stuff like this in a, in a deep way. All right. Thanks, Jim. And, uh, you know, that's uh, that article's in our October issue of Heavy Duty Trucking, uh, if you want to learn more. And don't forget to check out the rest of the podcasts in uh, season four. We've got uh, one on the future of diesel. We've got a podcast on uh, renewable natural gas. And I think we're going to produce a couple of uh, special reports between now and Christmas that have got to do something with fuel cells. So uh, thanks, everybody. Uh, Keep subscribing. Keep listening to the podcast and uh, try and drive up our listener numbers. See you later, Deb. Thanks, Jim. HDT Talks Trucking is sponsored by Heavy Duty Trucking Exchange. HDTX 2021 takes place May 3rd, 4th, and 5th in Scottsdale, Arizona. Go to heavydutytruckingexchange.com to view the agenda and apply to be our guest at HDTX 2021. If you're new to the podcast, make sure you subscribe so you won't miss an episode, and please leave us a review or a rating while you're at it. HDT Talks Trucking is produced by Deb Lockridge, recording and audio production by Jim Park. Heavy Duty Trucking Magazine is published by Bobbit Business Media. I'm Jim Park. Thanks for listening.